Our gospel text comes pretty much on the heels of last Sunday's gospel in which Jesus warned, for where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. And as we saw, if our treasure is anything but Jesus, then our lives will become fragmented, wandering off into all kinds of directions, pursuing so many desires that we can easily lose ourselves, possibly for eternity. If, however, our relationship with Jesus is primary, then everything, the good and the bad, and everyone, the good and the bad, will find its proper place in our lives. In today's gospel, we hear two very distressing statements from Jesus. I have come to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already blazing, and do you think I've come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What do they mean? There are two ways of looking at it. First, the location of our reading in the gospel is sandwiched between warnings against greed and anxiety and that the time for repentance is now. So many scholars have interpreted Jesus' words, I've come to set the earth on fire and how I wish you were already blazing, as a reference to the day of judgment when all, the living and the dead, will be subject to the relentlessly purifying and uncompromising fire of the Father's love and justice, which we will experience as either eternal joy or eternal horror, depending on how we lived our lives. But there is a second way of looking at this text. Jesus' reference to fire is the Holy Spirit to be poured out on his church. But this cannot happen until Jesus, as he says, is what? Baptized, immersed in the horrifying pain of his crucifixion and the glory of his resurrection. Only then can he send the Holy Spirit to guide the church and remain with the church until he returns at the end of time. May it be today. It was from this perspective that St. Cyril, Patriarch of Alexandria between about 412 and 444, wrote in his commentary on Luke's Gospel, we affirm that the fire that Christ sent out is for humanity's salvation and profit. May God grant that all our hearts be full of this. The fire is the saving message of the Gospel and the power of its commandments. The Gospel ignites all of us on earth to a life of piety and makes us fervent in spirit. And besides this, we are also made partakers of the Holy Spirit who is like fire within us. We have been baptized with fire and the Holy Spirit. For St. Cyril then, the fire that Jesus wants to engulf the earth with is nothing other than the fullness of the Father's love but that can only come through the horror of the cross. Jesus knew that his humiliating suffering and death was the only possible hope for an otherwise hopelessly lost humanity. 
He set his face towards Jerusalem, tells the, says the scriptures. He submitted fully to the Father's will, and he drank fully from what Jesus referred to as the potirion, the chalice, meaning the chalice of God's wrath. All the evil that God could justly allow man to be crushed by because of sin. Jesus drank it to the dregs, taking in every last bitterly disgusting drop of human arrogance and sin against the divine mercy, past, present, future. Jesus willingly became sin and put it to death on the cross. From this context, his chilling statement how great is my anguish until it is accomplished makes perfect sense, as does his pleading in the gospel with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, that this chalice be taken away from him, and yet he fully submitted to the will of the father. But then what is the meaning of his disturbing words? Do you think I've come to establish peace on the earth? No, I tell you but rather division. It is a warning to disciples throughout the church's journey in time. If we accept the struggle, and it often is a struggle, to make Jesus our treasure, we must expect abuse, persecution, hatred, from the powers of this world, and even from among our own family members who have chosen to abandon the Lord and follow the false lights of this world. This is inevitable. But why? The disciple is always graced to see himself or herself and indeed all people as beings of eternal worth, having an eternal dignity that begins at conception and ends with natural death. That this dignity is inherent to being made in the love and the image of God, ransomed from death at an incredible cost. And this eternal dignity and worth does not come to us from the state, does not come to us from the powers of this world, nor can the state or the powers of this world remove that dignity and that eternal worth from us. And that is why the world and those enthralled by the world hate us. Because they have no control over who we are, what we are called to be, how we are to live, and they have no control over the truth. Oh, they can legislate against truth, they can educate away a truth, but they can never alter the truth. The disciple must accept that at some point he or she will be on a collision course with the powers of this world. We've seen this played out throughout the course of history. We see it now in many parts of the world, and sad to say, even in our own society, and even some segments of our government which are increasingly hostile to people of religious faith in general and Christianity in particular. 
The powers of this world are always trying to get us to step in line with its visions of humanity. To manipulate us into calling what's intrinsically evil, good. And what is intrinsically good, evil. Or at the very least, to use its vast power to intimidate and frighten us into silence. All evil needs to thrive is our silence. But this the believer cannot do, lest he imperil his own or her own soul, as St. James warns in his letter, chapter 4, verse 17. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. The world's hatred of us is the price of making Jesus first and foremost in our lives. It is the great price of discipleship. The price not to be a disciple of Jesus however, is far worse. It is the loss of salvation, which is something this world is powerless to give. 